Thanks for listening to the Talking Hoops podcast. I'm Coach John Cook, and on today's episode, we're going to visit with Eric Gabriel. Eric is an assistant coach with High Point University in North Carolina, works on Tubby Smith's staff. He's in his seventh year at High Point, and he's an Athens, Ohio native who played Division II college basketball and has an amazingly unique journey through the coaching ranks to get to the mid-major level of Division I. I hope you enjoy our conversation with Eric Gabriel of High Point University. Hi, I'm Coach John Cook, and this is the Talking Hoops podcast. On today's episode, we are fortunate to be joined by Eric Gabriel. Eric is an assistant coach at High Point University in North Carolina, where he's been for a long time now and, and worked for two different head coaches. But before that, he was a, a young man from Athens, Ohio, um, who may have been, from what I've learned in our earlier attempts to record this podcast, may have been a, a better high school football player than he was a basketball player. But uh, two reasons I talk about having people on this podcast all the time. One is I believe that everybody's story in, in basketball, whether it's coaching or playing or some combination of both, is a unique story. And I love the stories. I, I, I had a student of mine where I work talk this year about the fact that there's literally power in other people's stories to impact our lives. And so I believe in that. And when we have guests on here, we try to get into their story as much as we can. And I'm looking forward to giving Eric the chance to tell his story. Eric, how are you today? Doing great, man. Doing great. Glad to appreciate you having me and looking forward to the opportunity. I can't agree more about the story, the, the power of the story in someone else and listening and learning from someone else's story. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Well, and I like it because I like the I like the undeniability, if, if, if you can buy into that, that whoever you are, you have a chance to help somebody else be better uh, or to, to do better or to learn from your journey. And, and that's what the power of other people's stories is, is what we can take from it, either that affirms our story or redirects our story. And um, if it's a story that revolves around basketball, that's the kind that I love. And, you know, I've, I've made no bones about it in the opening episode of this podcast. I talked openly about my journey. And, you know, I mean, if I'm if I'm just held feet to the fire, I'm very disappointed that I don't have the coaching career that I had dreamed of having. But at the same time, I also know that my journey has been my journey. My story is my story. And, and I'm not ashamed of my story. And I'm incredibly blessed just because of basketball, even though it didn't necessarily look like I thought it was look. And I think that's where the power of other people's stories come in. They may not sound or look like we think that the the, the fairy tale ought to look or sound, but they can have a great impact on our lives. And I look forward to sharing your story. Your story starts in Athens. We, we started talking about that a little bit earlier for the listeners that don't know, and none of you do. Uh, we made an effort to record this podcast several hours ago and <laughs> technology being what it is in rural Northwest Ohio, it was not a success at all. So we're taking another swing at it, but let's start with your, with your story that begins in Athens, Ohio, and talk a little bit about your, your journey growing up and into the high school and beyond basketball scene. Yeah, I, um, I was born and raised in Athens, Ohio, which is you know a little secluded, it feels like, or felt like from the rest of the world, especially at pre-social media, pre-internet, just kind of down there in the hills, and, and sometimes you don't feel like you're even part of Ohio, you know, from Columbus in the northwest part, um, and then up to Cleveland, and obviously Cincinnati just seems so far away, um, that we were just kind of down there, and, and almost naive to how good um, athletics and sports were outside of our area um, because it just seemed so far to travel. So as you get, as I get into high school and realized I was a decent athlete and um, probably thought I was better than I was, like most of us did, um, from the age of you know ten or twelve to eighteen, you think you're going to be a professional athlete of some sort, um, and that's what you're going for. And, and obviously, that's not the case for for many of us. Um, now, we do have Joe Burrow from Athens, Ohio now, so it's a little different now, Doctor. Well, see, now, um, I, I, was, I, had cho- I had chosen the route that was going to avoid Joe as a topic and somehow diminish your story. But if you want to embrace Joe, have at it. <laughs> no, I, I am absolutely going to embrace him because uh, being from Athens, you know, he's part of – he's a big part of that now, and especially what he's done for the community down there. And, um, I actually just got – my dad got his autograph for me on Sports Illustrated, and it would be up in my office – as uh, soon as I can get back in there, for sure. I'm excited about watching them. It's been fun to watch them. But uh, growing up in Athens, is a, like I said, was, was a little different, I think, than a lot of places. And, um, but I enjoyed it, and, and I think it made me who I am, and it makes the power of my story just that much more unique. And, and what I've learned, um, similar to you, is, is we don't all get maybe the, the 
the story we hope for and we write when we're younger and, and we're making this coaching journey, especially in this profession. But what I've learned is that we're all, all of our stories are different. It doesn't matter how similar they may seem, there's strength in the difference of them. And, and mine hasn't went exactly the way I planned and would I do a couple of things different? Sure. Um, but definitely very grateful for where I am now here at High Point and grateful for each step along the way. Um, coming from Athens as, as a player and then into my coaching journey, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when you finished your high school playing career, did you know at that point that coaching was in your future or did you just want to play some college ball and see where that led? You know, I, I wanted to be a coach and a teacher uh, for as long as I could remember. I wanted to, my dad was a high school coach, but he wasn't a teacher. And, and I was the first person in my family to go to college. Um, was encouraged by my dad to be a teacher so I could coach. Um, and I love the game of basketball. And like you mentioned, I was a much better football player, but uh, just loved the game of basketball. I knew that's what I wanted to do. So instead of taking the Division One route in football, uh, opted for the Division Two route kind of in the late spring of my senior year, go to West Liberty. Um, and between my sophomore and junior year, um, I had worked some camps, obviously, even up at Ohio Northern during uh, my, my senior year, high school, freshman year, college. Um, I coached between my sophomore and junior year. I coached the summer league team with, uh, who at the time, Frank Dowdmill was the head coach. Uh, he's a Northwest Ohio guy. Yeah, he cut, uh, he cut me twice. <laughs> <laughs> I, st- I, st- yeah. I still love the down like nobody else, but he cut me. <laughs> oh, well, that's good. Cause I, that's why we like hanging out with him so much. Cause you and I like to jab at him. Cause I, I mean, I give him all kinds of heck every time I see him. He may not uh, deserve it on the day that we're giving it to him, but he got away with it once or twice and didn't get it. So we're just getting even. You're exactly right. <laughs> he, coached, he coached me for two years. Um, and I've probably made the comment to him before that it was the worst two years I've had, but, but he and I get along great. Um, he, we didn't see eye to eye as a player and a coach, but that's because I love my previous coach so much. Um, and Jay Reese, who your brother Nick worked under, I believe, or maybe yeah. knew yeah, he um, did. beforehand. Yeah, he did. I've um, met Jay several times. And I'll tell you, the, the deal with Coach Dowd is this. He's got his way of doing things, and, and he's going to do it that way. And he's not he's not trying to win a popularity contest. But when the buy-in comes, you will undoubtedly be successful doing it his way. It doesn't mean it's the only way to be successful, but you will be successful doing it his way when the buy-in comes. And, you know, I, I, I give coach a lot of crap because he did cut me um, <laughs> from, the, from the basketball team when I, when I was a high school going into my junior year. He, he cut me that year. But I'll tell you what, he's the guy that, that got me really started in this. He, he knew I wanted to be a coach and it, had, it could not have been easy for him to call a 17-year-old kid and say, hey, I'm going scouting tonight. You want to go with me and see what you can pick up, what I can teach you? And I went with him scouting on a couple of trips and I'd go to practice every night because I didn't want to work on the farm. And so I'd stay and I'd stay and watch practice every night. And he'd, he'd catch me sometimes and he'd say, do you know where Scott Stemple, the coach at Canton lives or do you know where so and so lives? And I'd say no. And he'd tell me where it was and he'd say, you need to take my truck and take my three tapes and give them to him and pick up the three that he's got for me and get them back here before practice is over. And uh, literally, that's how that's how I got started in a desire I mean, I knew in the eighth grade I wanted to coach, but he made it real. He made it seem like a kid that wasn't good enough to play uh, could end up in coaching. And again, he understands that he cut me and it was hard to forgive him for that. And what you said about your two least favorite years in basketball, I I totally get that. But uh, but there's no there's no animosity towards Dowd from me. I mean, he, he helped make me the man that I am. No question. Well, we have that in common that he uh, he both gave us an opportunity to coach because uh, he let me come back that summer and coach the summer league team down at Jackson High School and, and I just that's when I it kind of really it just caught me the itch of coaching and the desire to be around basketball uh, for the rest of my life was at that point no question uh, I loved every minute of it I loved the camaraderie I loved the chess match of it I loved the motivation of it. Um, I love the team aspect and the leadership part of it, um, similar to teaching. So I was all in from that point on, um, knowing that I wasn't going to be a professional basketball player of any sort. So uh, finished my career at West Liberty. Um, By that point, my dad had taken over the Alexander varsity program um, to replace Coach Dowdman. So the day I graduated, his assistant coach, Mike Chapman, called me and said, hey, Eric, I'm going to resign. And. I want you to be your dad's varsity assistant. I don't want you to do JV or freshman or eighth grade. You just need to jump right in. Um, I'll forever be thankful for him for doing that because those two years with my dad 
to get to be your dad's assistant um, in the game that you both love and grew up with, and it's what we're so close, the reason we're close. Um, and I've talked about this and written about it before. Is it's unlike anything else, you know. Um, we we butted heads all growing up as he coached me in you know bitty ball and, and all the way up through. Um, he was on the bench. Funny enough, my dad was on the bench for every game I played from seventh grade through my senior year, but was never my head coach. He was the when I was a seventh grader, he coached the eighth grade, so he sat on the bench. When I was an eighth grader, um, he went down to seventh grade. So he didn't, he wasn't my head coach. And then as a ninth grader, I played JV. He was the eighth, uh, the ninth grade coach. And then I became a varsity player. He took over the JV team and then I became a varsity player. And he, he so he never was my head coach, but he was on the bench for every game. Um, well, I'll tell you, really cool. I'll tell you what, Eric, that says a lot about your dad, because in this era that I lived in my lifetime, if a parent wants to be on the bench, he's got to be a really good coach before he's a parent. And if they can't do that, they're oftentimes they're a liability. If your dad was able to do that from seventh grade through 12th, he was sending a lot of the right messages to the people that were making those hiring decisions. I can tell you that. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think I realized it then um, because, you know, he would get on me after games or get on me even during, he didn't say much during games at the time, but he would still get on me some and, and we butted heads because I thought I knew more than, than he did. Like every teenage boy does as, as the game rolls. But uh, looking back, it was, it was an awesome experience. And then when I got the opportunity to coach with him those two years, um, just unbelievable because he let me learn from him some things. You know, he, he has an ability to motivate players as good as any coach I've ever been around, but then let me kind of develop my own um, philosophy and style and X and O and what I thought was best for the talent we had those two years. And, and we were really successful in those two years, which was a, a lot of fun and, and I'll forever relish those. And, um, but so after that, just I'll try to move through this a little more quickly as, as we, uh, after my second year, we had set the record for wins at, at Alexander in a season, the most games won consecutively. We won a conference championship there, which hadn't been done, um, in a long time. Uh, so I thought I wanted to be a head coach. I was 23 years old. I didn't think I wanted to be. I thought I knew enough to be and thought I was smart enough to be. As little did I know, I was not nearly ready. Um, so 43 applications, I think, is what it was for every head coaching job in the state of Ohio. Uh, two interviews. Two interviews. Um Mechanicsburg was the one I couldn't think of when you and I were talking yesterday or earlier. Um, it's Mechanicsburg, right? Is that correct? Oh, that is correct. Absolutely, that is. What year? What year was that that you interviewed there? It would have been oh, let's see. I was with my dad from oh four to oh six, so two thousand six. Okay, I think I coached against the guy that you probably replaced. You may have. You yep. may have. Yep. Um, and so I got an interview there and an interview at Fort Laramie. Um, had two interviews at each place. You know, really thought I was going to get the Mechanicsburg job, and that's where I was going to go. Um, had no idea that of the 43 jobs that I applied to, Fort Laramie was probably the best one. Um, just an unbelievable Division Four program. Any, I mean, obviously anybody that listens to this that's from that area of the state or even the state of Ohio in general knows the history of that program uh, and the support they get both financially, both from fans, the, the work they put in. And uh, it's like Pleasantville driving through Fort Laramie, Ohio, and the, you, the brick houses and the basketball hoops and the kids out playing. It's, um, it was like a coach's dream when I drove through there as a, uh, during the interview. Um, and went there and knew nothing my first year and probably really underachieved with some really good athletes um, that went that won a state championship in baseball my first year there with Jared Hoying, who's now a professional in Korea and played in the major leagues. And we had multiple Division One baseball players and a couple of Division Two baseball players uh, that should have been I should have done a better job with as a basketball coach, but I didn't because I was so young and, and just needed to learn. And I learned a ton that first year and thought I did a decent job the second year and, and left uh, because I got the itch to get into college and left really talented kids and was really maybe the hardest decision of my coaching career was that. Um, but what I realized was no matter when you take a new coaching job, um, there's always some selfishness in it. There has to be. Don't let anybody ever fool you that there's not. Um, you have to do what's right for you and your family uh, because I did do what's right for me and my wife and, and we needed to do that for us uh, and my career. Uh, but number two, it's always going to be hard. 
you got to do a little bit selfishly and it's always going to be hard. It is never easy to leave a coaching job, whether you get fired, which I have been, or whether you get, um, whether you get another job because of your successes or anywhere in between, it's always going to be difficult. Um, but you have to have those relationships with your kids. And I remember calling every one of those kids, um, from Ohio Northern basketball camp and, and, and getting a phone call from the newspaper to do the article about it. And, uh, especially when I was leaving a teaching job and a coaching job at Fort Army, which is an unbelievable community and a great basketball program to go work at NCAA division three level for $0 in Fayetteville, North Carolina and make no money. Um, <laughs> that, that story is still amazes me. We hear about athletes betting on themselves all the time. If, if that's not the ultimate bet on yourself, I don't know what is. Yeah, um, my wife had kind of given me the, you know, let, if you're going to do this, let's do it. You're 25. Um, if you want to coach college, let's try. And I had no idea how hard it was to get in at the time. Applied for 120-some jobs, men's, women's, Division One, Two, Three, didn't matter. Um, really only got one interview. Uh, had another call from a school in California. I couldn't even tell you who it was. And I think it was a junior college. Um but got the one interview at Methodist, drove down, got the got the job. Obviously, it's a volunteer, but you know they did. They said there's a hundred and some applicants for this volunteer job. Um, I got it, was offered, took it. Uh, my wife and I sold everything we owned out of our apartment up there in Piqua and uh, drove a small U-Haul with what was left in North Carolina. Um, lied to an apartment complex, which I don't condone, but we needed a place to live. <laughs> and so uh, we told him, we told him we had jobs that we didn't have and we didn't check on them. So we uh, we found a place to live just outside of Raleigh, um, which ended up being a great decision. Looking back, and we got very we're very fortunate because my wife. Um, we did it close to Raleigh because it's a bigger city and we knew she needed to find a job. So she had a better chance. So I drove an hour and 10 minutes one way to Methodist every day. And she got it on as a temporary um, worker for a, a small all girls school down there in, in downtown Raleigh. So my first year I'm driving to Methodist hour and 10 minutes one way. I meet Joey Higginbotham. who's the head coach at Mount Olive uh, division two school. and still about an hour away from Raleigh. He offered me a job my second year down here for $5,000 a year. Um, I took it. In the meantime, my wife gets offered free housing at this all girls boarding school. So it just worked out. Um, for, that was a big turning point in my career because her getting that job to, for free living, um, and as a full-time job and, and allowed me to take a $5,000 a year job at a division two school and, maybe some of the happiest years of our lives like just unbelievable time meeting friends in our late 20s coaching division two basketball which i love because i played it and joey higginbotham is one of the most underrated coaches in the country that nobody knows it's division two level what, what uh, school was that again eric mount olive it is now oh. the university of mount olive and it, what part yeah. of north carolina just outside of goldsboro between fayetteville and goldsboro in the eastern side of the state okay Division two school. I'm, 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 I've heard of the school, but I'm not familiar with it. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, if, if you've ever been to the grocery store and bought pickles, there's Mount Olive Pickles. Yep, yep, yep. That's where the pickle plant is in Mount Olive, North Carolina. Very uh, good. So, <laughs> so we held the uh, we held the pickle classic every year, which I believe is is in the fifty some fifty some odd years. Um, which is just as old as the Maui Classic. I think they're the two oldest tournaments in the country. Wow. And and Coach Higginbotham's still there? He is still there. And uh, just recently went to Elite Eight a few years ago. Uh, we were a top 25 program when I was there. And, and just does it with less resources and and just really coaches kids up. He's a really good coach. And it's the only place he's ever coached. Well, see, you, you may be able to help create a future episode of the podcast by getting me in, coach, in touch with Coach Higginbotham. That'd be cool. Oh yeah, no, he would love to do. It. He's a, he's a he's he's a good one, man. Oh, how he's many, a really good one. How many years did you get to spend working Division Two then? So I, I spent um, three years with Coach Higginbotham at Mount Olive. Uh, first two years he gave me five thousand. My third year he gave me a whopping fifteen thousand dollars a year. Um, 
and I really was happy and, and fine. The money, I mean, it's, it stunk, but my wife and I were happy and I, I just, he had just kind of encouraged me that you need to move on in this profession. And I, and I don't know that you're going to be able to do it for Mount Olive because he was trying to get some other jobs that he didn't. And he just, he was settling in with his family and he said, why don't you see what's out there? So I started applying for jobs again and, uh, out of, off of a whim, which is kind of rare in this profession is I just sent my resume to an opening at Shepherd university. Um, and I got the job, uh, without knowing anybody there, without a reference, anything. The guy just, for whatever reason, Justin Namlick, looked at my resume and thought that I would be good, um, which is very rare in this this world. And, I, I mean, I, obviously the interview went well. The, the one thing I did have going for me is I had a master's degree because while I was at Mount Olive, um, I went through an online master's program at Ohio University and got my master's in coaching um, just because I, I kind of wanted a backup plan uh, in case this coaching thing didn't work out, I wanted to be able to go teach or, you know, do something at the college level. So anyway, I go to Shepherd University in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. Uh, I'm there for about 10 months, uh, coach one season, and I get a phone call from Ahmad Dorsett, who I replaced at Mount Olive. Uh, he, I, we worked together for one day before he left for another coaching job. And fast forward four years, he's at High Point University as the top assistant under Scott Cherry, and he calls me and says, hey, we're creating a video uh, operations job on our coaching staff, so basically a director of video operations, video coordinator, whatever you want to call it. He said, would you be interested in it? And I said, man, I don't I mean video. Like, I'm not coaching. I'm not recruiting. And he just said, trust me, you know, this is your end to Division One." So uh, my wife wanted to come back to North Carolina for sure, and, and the job was – just almost too good to turn down. So I did it um, for one year. And fast forward now, I, mean, I just finished my seventh year at High Point. Um, I did one year as a video coordinator. My second year, I got bumped up to director of player development. Um, my third year, uh, I was uh, bumped up to an assistant coach and uh, was assistant for Scott Cherry for three for a few years and then I've been um, stayed on with Tubby Smith and, and just finished my second season with him um, and that's where I'm at and so I'm sorry for the long-winded answer but it seems like obviously the older I get the longer it takes to tell that story. <laughs> <laughs> no those those are the that's that's what we want with the story so then that opens up a whole lot of potential questions for me you know I mean the question of how'd you get the high point can't be answered simply so that's it, that's not the not 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 fair to try and answer it simply. And, and each of those steps, I, I will forever be. Um, I don't know if amazed is the right word, but I will I will never discount the value of of building a relationship from even a single meeting or a single season or a single time of a period of your life spent with somebody uh, because you don't know where those things will pay off. And it's very obvious that your paths crossing with one or two individuals created a situation where you end up at high point. Now, the, the, the scary thing I'm going to guess about being at high point, and you mentioned it, is a couple of years ago, Scott Cherry, who's a guy that I know you had just immense respect for, uh, was let go at high point. And, and typically, without any real personal experience with it, we, we assume, I think, those of us in the coaching profession, that at the Division One college level, if the head coach gets fired, everybody's out of a job. Yeah. Um, and we were, I mean, we got called in on, on, I believe it was March 7th. It was the Wednesday of spring break. I'll never forget it. I'm sitting on my couch. Uh, this is to backtrack a little bit. This is, we had won four straight conference championships with Scott Cherry. Um, we were two years removed from that. Uh, we went 500 the next two years or right at it. We were a game over a game under 500 over the next two years, but only two years from four straight conference championships. Now, let me tell you who else has done won four straight conference championships. Kansas, Gonzaga, Davidson, and Stephen F. Austin. The fifth school is High Point. So that's pretty rare company. Yeah, I don't, there's not many. I don't think any of those schools. I don't think any of those guys are two two five hundred years away from being fired. I can tell you that. That's what I'm thinking. Um, so so. Wednesday of spring break, I'm sitting on my couch with my wife. We're, we're talking about where we might go for that weekend to get away. Um, 
and I get a phone call that says you need to be in the athletic director's office in 15 minutes. We just got fired. And uh, I'm driving to the office. Coach Cherry calls me, says, Eric, you know, I just want you to hear it from me that we definitely, I just got let go. You guys are, the staff's getting called in to be told what's going on. Um, he apologized. I apologized to him. Um, and 10 minutes later, I'm sitting in front of my athletic director. Uh, they, he had met with me last. Uh, he had met with everyone else before me. Uh, he met with me and, and asked me if I would stick around or, or if I had any desire to stick around and just kind of help with the players until the new coach was hired, but that I wouldn't be on the new staff. Um, he told me I didn't have to. Um, it was completely up to me. They gave us a couple months of pay, uh, part of our contracts and said, you know, you, you don't have to be here another day if you don't want. We know you got to find another job. And uh, so I talked with the rest of the staff. We all met. We had we had dinner that night. We uh, we sulked. We <laughs> we cried. We laughed. We uh, all of the emotions um, and didn't really know what to do, you know. Uh, so my wife and I sat down and. She said, what do you, she asked me what I was going to do. And, and I said, I'm going to go to work. These are, these are, these are my players. Like I gotta, I gotta go to work. So I go to work and, uh, of the six staff members, everyone had left, but myself and our director of operations, everyone else had packed their bags and look for other jobs. And they all found jobs, uh, which was great for them. Um, I was still searching, but I was also there for my players. And, and so my, myself and our director of operations, Went to work a few weeks later. Tubby Smith is hired. Uh, we get about two minutes with him the day he got hired. I hand him a book with my resume and portfolio and kind of everything that I had. And he said, you'd like to work. He asked me if I wanted to work there. I said, absolutely. I'd love to be on your staff in any way. Um, so uh, I want to answer this question thoroughly because I think I learned more over that that next eight weeks than, than I've ever learned in my life. Um, and I think you'll see why when I, when I answer this and stop me if, you, if I don't say something clearly, but, uh, so from that point on, Tubby has, was kind of in and out of the office. Cause obviously he was super busy taking over a new program at his alma mater. Uh, the April recruiting period is the last two weekends in April. He got hired in late March. Um, he was kind of asking me questions here and there in the office, but I was there every day before he got there. And I stayed till he left. Now he would get there about seven o'clock in the morning and he would stay till about seven o'clock, eight o'clock at night. And I didn't once let him see my office with me, not in it. And eight weeks. So we get to the April recruiting period, the last two weeks of April. And he calls me in and he says, uh, Hey, I want you to go recruiting this weekend for high point. Pick where you want to go. But while you're there, you need to look for another job. Cause I'm not sure I've spot for you. And I said, okay. And so the first week I went to Atlanta, um, I'm in Atlanta, the recruiting period, those weekends for division one is Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I get to Atlanta on Friday. He calls me early Saturday morning and says, I'm, in, I'm getting on a flight to Atlanta. I'll meet you there. We spend the day together recruiting five or six hours in a bit. He flies to the next place. The next fast forward a week, um, he calls me in his office again, says, Eric, it's another recruiting weekend. I, I want you to go. You know, High Point will pay for it. I want you to go recruit wherever you want. He said, you need to go where you can find a new job. Go where you think there will be the most coaches that you can network and talk to, and I want you to find a new job. And I said, okay, Coach, well, I appreciate that. Um, I said, I think I'm going to go to Pittsburgh. There's going to be a lot of coaches there. He said, absolutely. So I go to Pittsburgh. I get there on a Friday night again. Saturday calls me. He says, calls me at 6 a.m., um, Says, hey, I'm on. I'm on getting on a flight right now. I'll meet you in Pittsburgh. He comes up. He watches one game with me, uh, which is a kid we ended up recruiting and getting, and uh, watched that game with me. And he left. And uh, so I come back to the office. I'm in some meetings. Some meetings he doesn't have me in. So that's the end of April. So I, you know, I got hired in late March. We go through April. We get in May. Not a lot goes on for basketball in May. Um, in Division One because of NCA rules. So my contract and my pay is up May 31st. My insurance, my pay, my con, everything. May 31st, I'm out. And I'm still looking for a job in a hard way, but I'm in that office every day. And May 28th, uh, he called me in his office. It was about 7 o'clock at night, 7.30. 
And I thought, you know what? He's not going to hire me. Um, and he's still in his office and I can't wait anymore. And I need to go home and tell my wife, we got to think about what's happening. Well, Eric, let's, 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 let's let's stop right there just for a second. I want to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to tell how that story ends and where it led to where, where we're at right now. So let's just take a quick break. Cause I I need to add about 30 minutes. I got to take a break and then we can get the the second park pick back up. Absolutely. All right. Thanks. Welcome back to the talking hoops with coach John cook podcast. Uh, Our guest today is Eric Gabriel and Eric is an assistant at high point university. If you weren't with us before the break, uh, or if you are, trying to listen halfway through um, the coaching change at High Point University two seasons ago when when Eric's boss, Scott Cherry, was let go and Tubby Smith was hired as a replacement. Uh, Eric has relayed for us a lot of details about that process. And when we left off right before the break, um, Eric was literally three days away from being jobless, insuranceless, <laughs> and on his own twisting in the wind and called in to meet with Tubby Smith. So Eric, pick up from where you left off and let's let's go with the rest of the story. Um, yeah, so the, the last day I was there in the office, or the May 28th, I'm in the office, and uh, it's about 7 o'clock at night, and, and up to this point, from March, late March till the end of May, I had been in the office before and after Tubby every day um, that I could, you know, that I, that we weren't on the road recruiting or something of that nature, but he saw me every day, and uh, so I'm walking out, I, I finally decide on May 28th that I need to go home, I was, I mean, I was, I was discouraged, and I said, I gotta go home. And I got to talk to my wife and, and decide what we're going to do. Because in the meantime, I had interviewed for some financial advising stuff and um, just other odd and end jobs and, and, and thought maybe I had a chance to take one of those and needed to decide what I was going to do because I didn't have a coaching job. And at this level, let me remind you, is, is we don't make the money that you see the high major coaches make. This is not like I make enough money to be good for a couple of years or I get a buyout or no, I, I'm. I need to have a job like the next day. Uh, so I'm walking out 7 p.m. ish, something like that. And, and coach says, Hey, Eric, can you come in here a minute? And I'm like, well, this is it. Um, he was just waiting for me to leave. And, and this is it. So I go in and, and he kind of starts having some small talk, which obviously you think in my mind, I'm sitting in front of his desk of, of Tubby Smith, who's, you know, this legendary Hall of Fame coach, and, and I'm thinking I need to go coach because I got to find another job. <laughs> and, and and he's and we're talking on and off, and uh, he eventually says, "Well, hey, I want you to know, and I'll never forget word for word. I want you to know you're going to be kept here as an assistant coach." Now, I was obviously in my, my insides were fireworks. Like I've never been. I've, I've went from Athens, Ohio, at Alexander Division Three basketball player coach to now I just became an, an assistant for Tubby Smith. Now, if you're from the Southeast part of Ohio, there's a lot of Kentucky fans down there. Oh yeah. Yes, sir. Including my high school basketball coach that I love to this day, Jay Reese. He's as big a Kentucky basketball fan as you'll ever meet. And I could not think of anything else but saying, coach, I am the, I'm an assistant for Tubby Smith. Like I, that's all I can think of was telling my wife, and telling Coach Reese that I was assistant for Tubby Smith. Hey, not not, not not to interrupt the story because it is a great story. But you said Jay Reese is a big Kentucky fan. He's got two kids. What are their names? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Kyle and Allie. <laughs> Kyle after. Yep. Kyle, Kyle, Macy. Kyle Macy was his guy. That that's unreal. I love it. I love it. Yep. So, so uh, when when did you get to make that call? How quick did it? Ta- how long before you got to call Coach Reese? Well, you know, and some of the details I left out of is during this whole process, um, when when the coaching change happening, Tubby Smith got hired. Uh, Greg White, who used to be the head coach at Marshall, worked Tubby Smith's camps. And I got in touch with him through a former recruit, and he was helping me out. He was calling Tubby, telling him he needed to hire me. Uh, and Coach Reese, um, who's uh, good friends with um, Norm Pearson, you know, the high, a Hall right. of Fame coach in Southeast Ohio. Norm used to work t- at Tubby's camps at Kentucky. So Coach and I have been talking a lot. Coach Reese and I have been talking a lot because he was having Norm call Tubby and say, hey. And Norm had a conversation with Tubby that said, hey, you need to hire Eric Gabriel. This kid, look at his resume. There's a 
bunch of good basketball players in Ohio. He's recruited them. He knows Ohio. You need to get some Ohio kids down there. They're, they want to leave the state to go play in the South. You know, and, and so Norm and, and, and Coach Reese and Greg White, these guys are going above and beyond anything they ever owe me um, to help me be a Tubby Smith assistant. And Tubby told me all of that at the end. I mean, I kind of knew it was going on because I would have been talking to Coach Reese quite a bit. Sure. Um, just as, you know, I, I was talking to anybody I could to, to kind of put me in a good mind frame um, and stay in the moment every day because I, I didn't want to just dwell on all the negative because it could have just, it could have taken me over and, and swallowed me. Um, but Coach helped me out. So, so I immediately drove um, – to see my wife who was teaching a yoga class that night and I, I caught her like 30 seconds before she was walking in the door um teary-eyed and just told her that you know things she has a full-time job and works and has a career um you know so you, our jobs could take us anywhere but to tell her that I didn't have to find another job <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and I think I called coach Reese immediately after um, my dad and him and right after that to, to let him know. And, uh, you talk about a whirlwind of feelings, uh, and emotions and, uh, and all that go with it. You, you just have no idea till you go through it. So when you talk about that eight week period and you said how much you learned, I mean, flesh out a little bit about specifically what you learned, because I'm, I'm going to guess that a very, very small percentage of it had anything to do with actual basketball. Zero. Yeah. Yeah. Zero had to do with basketball. Um, I learned a lot about how this business works. Um, I learned a lot about uh, who my true friends in this profession are and who they aren't. Um, I'm sure during that eight weeks, uh, well, I know for a fact, I had a conversation with you. I had a conversation with your brother. Um, I went to the state tournament that well, year. Absolutely. That, state tournament. that was because I can remember that the the first morning of the state tournament, I think we picked you up at your hotel. Uh, yeah, probably. Because we were still trying to get to ours. They had rerouted traffic, and it was a mess down there in Columbus. But I, I got to tell you, Eric, the, the thing that struck me during that time period was what you said you tried to do came through in your body language and your demeanor. You were ultra positive, um, and and not you did not appear at all shaken by the uncertainty of your situation. I mean, I think I remember you making one joke. And that was, I, I don't know if I'm going to be working at High Point, but I usually recruit Ohio and they paid for the trip. So here I am, <laughs> you know, I'm in Columbus and, and and God bless you. I'm glad you did because it's the only time every year I get to see you. But, um, know, right? but, but you were remarkably upbeat and, and positive. And literally what you talked about was just staying in the grind every day even though you weren't sure what that meant. And I, I'm t- it spoke volumes to me in, it, in what might have been a 15- or 20-minute conversation total. Yeah. Um, yeah, I learned uh, I learned that to prepay for hotels and flights every chance you get because if you get fired, <laughs> you, still get, you still get a use of it. That was a damn nice hotel you stayed in, too, I got to tell you. It was. Yes, it was. It was. I, uh, I was so I was so happy I prepaid for it. There wasn't much they could do because <laughs> um, that was actually between uh, Coach Cherry getting fired and Coach Smith getting hired. Absolutely. Yes, sir. If it fell right in the gray area. So I went to our athletic director and said, hey, I don't have a boss. I've paid for this trip. What do you want me to do? And, and he said, well, it's paid for. You might as well go go to the Ohio State Tournament. So I said, okay, and off, off I went. And, um, uh, maybe in as fun of a state tournament as I've had, Yeah. Um, to be honest with you. Like, it just had a blast because I was – I almost relaxed a little bit, you know, hanging out. I got to see you guys. My dad came up for a day. You and Nick were there. Coach Dowden was there. I think – I mean, I don't even – Coach Reese may have came up for a game. And, and I just know so many coaches and so many people up there and I have such a respect for Ohio high school basketball that um, I was able to just kind of relax a little bit and, and – and have my own hotel room where I could reflect some. And I probably was able to, to do a little thinking and note taking up there that I may not otherwise be able to do um, if I was around anybody. Right. Um, so it's probably a perfect time for me to just to do both relax with some friends and, and network and then just go to a hotel room. And, and I think I had dinner by myself every night that week. I do remember that. Yeah. Uh, I went and watched NCAA tournament games and, and ate by myself just to kind of unwind. 
uh, it had to be a, a surreal period. But now you can kind of fast forward a little bit, two years, and and in the two years, it's it's been a little rough on the floor. Uh, I mean, in spots, it's been really rough, I'm sure. Um, and and we don't generally use a lot of this podcast time with a first time guest. I'm going to have some repeat guests and get into some things. But I would like to talk a little bit about the evolution in terms of coaching. I mean. Scott Cherry was a terrific basketball coach, and Tubby Smith obviously is a, is a Hall of Fame type of basketball coach. And and so you you've had a resume as a player and as a coach, you've experienced a lot of different leadership styles, a lot of different coaching styles. But what I'm always fascinated by is a, a young person, and and I'll call myself young for at least two more years. When I turn fifty, I probably don't get to do that anymore. Uh, <laughs> but when you when you played in the late '90s and early 2000s. And then you get into coaching, and now we're we're 2020. Eric, this game has changed a lot, and, and you've gotten yeah. to you've gotten to see that evolution from a lot of different uh, perspectives. How has it impacted the way you see the game from an X and O standpoint? What have you What have you taken from your journey that you that you feel like it, it makes what you you do as a coach or what you've experienced a little bit unique? Number one thing um, for sure is that that I've learned is that the, the X's and O's don't matter nearly as much as what we think they do. Um, not even close. Now, growing up in Ohio and Ohio high school coaches, they X and O better than most people in the country. Most college coaches, to be honest with you, they, there is some like big time X and O basketball coaches in high school basketball in the state of Ohio. And I'm not saying that because I, I'm not being biased by any means. I've seen a lot of basketball in almost 50, all 50 states. I've seen college basketball from playing at coaching at Syracuse when they were ranked number two in the country um, to, you know, multiple top 25 games to the best bid majors in the country to you name it. Um, the best top 20 division two division three, whatever Ohio high school white coaches do some X and O stuff that, that they're ahead of the, the times usually. Um, but I've learned that that's not, it's not as important as, as the, mo- the, the the guys playing together and the team motivation and the camaraderie and the, all that stuff you hear that's kind of cliche, it is absolutely true. Um, but yes, the game itself, yes, has, and I've been with coaches on all sides of the, the sphere as far as uh, playing slow and grinding it out to playing fast and shooting threes and throwing it in the post and doing all of it. Uh, I've seen it all and, and kind of been around it all. What Coach Smith does better than most people is just keep the – there's certain fundamentals about basketball that, that don't change no matter what style you play. Um, they, they are going to be consistent, and he has not changed that throughout his career. He's done that with Rajon Rondo and, and Tayshaun Prince and uh, any of the other number of players that he's could keep Bogans and all the way down the line. Um, he's doing that now with our players. He did it as a high school coach because he was a high school coach in Maryland and in North Carolina uh, before going to VCU as an assistant. Uh, but he has kept those fundamentals. So if you can do the fundamentals, you can almost play any style you want. The, 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 the hardest part is finding the style that fits your team the best um, year to year. You know, in college, we can recruit the styles a little bit. In high school, you can't do that so much. But uh, the fundamentals stay the same, and, and you just try to find the best fit for the personnel that you have. And that's what the NBA does year to year. Um, and then it all trickles down. Um, we play a little more traditional under coach Smith. We're not, we're not as, we're not quite there with the five guard stuff and centers out shooting threes and leading the break and all that, um, that some teams <laughs> are doing, but, uh, we throw it in the post about as much as anybody in the country, but we still, shoot, he still wants to shoot some threes now. And then we're going to get better at that. And I like our new team coming back with the, the roster we have. We're going to be able to open it up a little bit more. When you guys recruit post players and and you do like to throw it inside, like you said, but but the game basically demands that you, you be able to and be willing to shoot the three. It just does. And do, do, do you guys recruit post players? Is it an important piece to the puzzle that they are able to, to make plays out of the post as much as they're able to make shots out of the post? Yeah, well, first and foremost, they got to be able to catch it. Yeah. They got to be able to get position and catch the ball. That's the number one thing they got to be able to do. I heard John. Uh, I heard John Cheney say once, if you got a big guy, a really big guy right now, and he can't catch, cut him because he'll he'll end up driving you nuts. And, and that's uh, exactly it, it. there's a certain element of truth to that. And and you know, I'll always be a guy that likes to throw it inside because one of the things I'm not is, is is innovative in terms of coaching. And I 
you know, you got to be true to who you are and, and the game's requiring certain things. But when you say you're throwing it in there, the ability to get position, the ability to catch it, when you guys throw it inside, then are, are your bigs, do you need, do you want them or need them to be able to pass it out and make the right play? Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the keys to that is that the other four guys on the floor are doing the job they're supposed to do when the ball is thrown in the post. Um, where are those other four guys supposed to be? What cuts or screens are they supposed to be making so that that post guy knows? Because, listen, we're going to play 30 games, and we're going to play teams that, that front the post, don't front the post, trap the post from the top, trap the post from the baseline, trap the post from the passer, X-trap the post, side-trap the post. I mean, there's a million different things, and we're going to see them all. But if our post guy knows exactly what the other four guys on the floor are doing, as soon as he catches it, it shouldn't matter um, if you have a good one. And we have a good one from Columbus, Ohio. Caden Sanchez is uh, as good a center in our league as anybody has. He's going to be back as a redshirt junior next year. And he's gotten really good at that. And, and I mean, he's potential to be an all-league player for us this year because of that. Because he can, if he's one-on-one down there, he's going to score. Um, if he's not... Um, He's learning to make the right play as our other four guys get better at where they're supposed to be. Because because ultimately, you know, you like to throw the ball in the post. Um, I might like to dribble it in there, but ultimately, the ball. What we're trying to do is collapse the defense. Right. Right. I mean, that's all we're trying to do is get get more than one set of eyes on the basketball so we can make a right make a play to get an easy basket. I mean, I really it, it's the longer I watch the game, and obviously, I don't coach it full-time for a job, but, but I'm very involved in, in programs. And the, the more I watch the game, it, it literally seems to me that the game has evolved into what can I do to create a long closeout and play against it. <laughs> and, and, Absolutely. and guys are so good. I mean, I really believe this. And Don Meyer, God rest his soul, used to say that the hardest thing to do in basketball is guard a bat out of hell was his terminology. And that's a guy coming downhill with a live dribble. And, and yep. I, I still think that that's probably the hardest thing to do in basketball. If it's not the hardest thing to do, that the next hardest thing in my mind is to one-on-one guard a guy in the post and keep him from getting a good shot individually, one-on-one. So you do have to bring help or you do have to dig or trap or double. And then, you're again, you're talking about from there, you're creating that kick out and that long closeout and, and attacking downhill. And so I, I think it's the, the simpler the game gets from that perspective. You talked about Tubby, Coach Smith, emphasizing the – the fundamentals, it's, it's having that fundamental base that you can build on so guys can make individual plays in those types of circumstances that becomes incredibly important. Yeah, and, and what, you know, it gets lost sometimes and all that, and, and all the us coaches, me included, we make it so complicated uh, when the, when the sim- simplicity of it is this. If, if you can swing the basketball in every pass, without a dribble, with every pass being on time and on target, that's really hard to guard. But if you throw a pass that's a little bit errant, you know, a little high, a little low, and it gives the defense time to adjust, then that's bad fundamentals. That's that's ultimately what the fundamentals are. When I'm talking fundamentals, we're talking about very basic. Can you pass with your left hand on the left side, your right hand on the right side, and put it on, on target so that that guy can get it to the next guy right away? And then eventually on that, that swing, you get that long closeout that you're talking about, and you don't need 17 dribbles like James Harden because we're not all James Harden. Right. We're Eric Gabriel and John Cook. What I need is you to see me with an opportunity to make a three because you're going to sprint at me because I'm a good shooter and I'm going to go by you. And if I'm not a good shooter and you close out short, I'm still probably going to go by you because that's a really hard thing to do. Absolutely. I think it's the hardest skill and the most necessary skill in the game is to be able to close out and guard two dribbles. And uh, there aren't very many guys that are very good at it. Um, and yeah. Yeah, my college coach, Dan Petrie, and, and he said all the time, um, I mean, a million times of practice, you can't play if you can't pass and catch. If you can't pass and catch, you can't play. He said it every day. He said, I can, I can coach a guy that can't dribble. I can coach a guy that can't shoot. If you can't pass and catch, you can't play. Uh, it's enduring wisdom, to be sure. I just wish more people would buy into it and understand the importance of, of the, that, that the, the on-time, on-target pass in any and every circumstance because it, it is it is the creator or the destroyer of scoring opportunities, no question. Mm-hmm. So exactly. talk to me a little bit about the league that High Point is in. You guys are, are essentially a mid-major conference, and what, what I want you to talk about with you. So who do you play? Who's your league? And then across your league, is it are there varying styles? Or is everybody playing very similarly? The reason I ask that is I've coached at Division three level at, at, at Ohio Northern a couple of years, and it feels to me like in our league, 
10 teams, and essentially everybody is playing four around one, throw it up, blow it up the floor as quick as you can and find a three as quick as you can with three or four 40% three-point shooters on the floor. And there's just this, pardon the terminology, but there's this homogeneity of style of play that I get bothered by that at the Division three level. And I, it concerns me at every level because if we're all going to play the exact same way, then the guy with the most talent is going to win every time, not just most of the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, we have a we have a variety for the most part. You know, we're leaning. Our league is leaning toward more guard play um, because being a, a smaller Division One school, we don't get quite the size that everybody does. I mean, we're one of the bigger teams at High Point because Coach Smith wants that. Um, the best teams in our league are the, are the teams that usually have the best four man, in my opinion. Over the seven years I've been here, the team that has the best four man, who is kind of a hybrid forward. Um, who's more of a, a can pick and roll, can pick and pop, can rebound, make the occasional three, um, handle the ball two or three bounces when he needs to, just kind of does it all. Whoever has that best player in that spot is typically the best team. Um, if they're, if it's not their best player, he's one of their best players. Um, you know, this year it was Radford with Carly Jones, who's potentially an NBA player, just went to Louisville. Uh, he was a point guard, but they had a pretty good foreman too, you know. So, but yeah, we we play a little more traditional, um, three around two, four around one. Our foreman has a little more freedom to do what what he wants as far as being inside or outside. There's teams in our league that are strictly five out, um, and then there's a, everybody in the middle is a four around one, where at least four guys on the floor usually have the green light to shoot to three. Um, if not all five, you know, sometimes, but the majority of us is four out one in, um, some like to get it up the floor and, and get the first shot, you know, quick as can be. And then we have others in our league that still shoot a bunch of threes, but they're going to grind it out a little bit more. You know, they, they really run their secondary break or they want to get into a quick hitter or a set. Um, the 30 second shot clock has changed some of that versus the 35 second. Um, but you know, we play, when we play Winthrop, He's uh, been one of the better teams in our league over the last years. Uh, you better be able to guard the first eight to ten seconds in the shot clock, or if not, you're in trouble. Because uh, they're going to get it up the floor, make, miss, turnover, doesn't matter, and they're going to get a good look at it early, and then they're going to come to the offensive glass like madmen and just you better block them out. You better contest threes, protect the rim, and block them out. Um, that's tough. You know, it's a tough thing to do when somebody plays really fast. So, uh, but you got, you know, Winthrop's been really good. Radford's been really good in our league. Um, Charleston Southern's in our league who shoots a ton of threes and plays really fast. Uh, you know, we're a little more traditional. Um, Longwood is a dribble drive team out of Virginia. We have Hampton who's a little more, they play a a faster pace, but they they usually have one or two dynamic scores that kind of dominate the ball. Um, UNC Asheville, you know, they, their head coach, Mike Morrell, is, is a Shaka descendant. So he's playing a lot like Shaka did in the VCU days with the Havoc stuff. Yeah. They force, force a ton of turnovers um, and, and really press you the whole game, which is unlike anybody else in our league. Uh, everyone else is kind of a press on dead ball. The press has went out a little bit with the 30-second shot clock. Not as many teams do it. Yeah, um, it's interesting. So- Interesting to me, Eric, is that, you know, we started to talk about this the other night or last night when we made the attempt to record this, that there, there was a stretch of time there, late 90s, probably late 90s would be the, 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 to hone it in, where it just felt like a lot of guys wanted to play the way Patino was playing. They wanted to press a ton. They wanted to extend their D and try to create turnovers. And and that's just really kind of gone by the wayside. It's it's very rare, I think, to, to have teams that are fully committed to a style where they're going to play 94 feet of defense for 40 minutes. It's just not that common anymore. It's really not. It's a hard thing to do, man. You know, a lot of kids say, well, I want to play fast. Well, they don't know what that demands. Playing fast is really hard. Um, That is a hard thing to do. It is a lot easier for a coach and for a kid to play within a a half court offense. They they don't want to admit it, but that's just the truth. It is hard to play fast. Uh, and my dad's always played fast for the most part. And, and, you know, but we played zone when we were really successful. We played a two, three zone because the zone allowed us to get out on the fast break. Quicker. Get in your lanes quick and get going. Yeah. And, and it also, and, and the, the old adage about not being able to rebound out of the zone. Well, that's because nobody practices it. We played zone for 22 games and won 17 of them. And we, I don't know if we got out rebounded once. 
it's just because that's what we did. Um, you just got to know how to do it the right way, and you got to have good rebounders. Some of that's just kids that got to know how to rebound. Yeah, I, um, I, when it comes down to it, rebounding is still going to be a fairly high percentage of it. it's about want to. And if you got four guys that want to defensive rebound, I don't give a damn what defense you play, you're going to be a pretty good rebounding team. That's exactly right. I mean, our center was six two the year we had the best team in Alexander ever, and. Yeah, I don't know. I can't remember a game we got out rebounded. Maybe one of those few that we lost, but uh, we played a matchup zone all year just so we could get out in our lanes. And, and then we were running a five out offense then um, in 2005, 2006. We were five out. And uh, it was the most fun, best coaching job I've seen. I don't, I don't know if anybody I've been with has done a better coaching job than, than my dad did that year with the. With the lack of talent to win that many games um, and those kids with special group of kids uh, it was fun to do but that's what we did we played zone and we ran and played five out it's pretty amazing when it comes down to it and I, I take nothing away from coaches that, that do a great job and I've been fortunate I put that in quotes to coach some teams that lack talent by comparison to our competition a lot in my life but you can do a great job as a coach but it generally comes down to the quality of those kids, the buy-in you get, and their commitment to the vision. And if they are, man, it, especially in high school, you've got a chance to do yes. some special things if they get if you get that buy-in. I really believe that. Yeah, and I miss that about high school. Um, that's the one thing. I loved coaching high school basketball. And, and those couple years at Fort Laramie and a couple years with my dad is I, I, obviously not, not every kid's ever going to be happy on every team. Everybody wants to play. I don't want a kid that doesn't want to play. If you don't want to play, then don't play. Like, don't even be on the team. Like, I want you to want to play because that way you're working at it in practice. And at the very least, I want you to want to get better so that you can make the guys that are playing better. Um, if you're not, then just don't be on the team. But what I miss about it is is those kids grow up together, especially small high school basketball, like Fort Laramie and Alexander. Is, those kids grew up together, and they're just such great friends. I mean, the number 15 guy on our bench at Fort Laramie was – I mean, he was one of my favorite players of all time. Yeah. And played very limited minutes, but was just as important um, as anybody else on that team. You know, college, that gets lost a little bit, especially today with the transfer craziness. Um, But every kid we bring in expects to play. I mean, they're they're all good players. I mean, my college roommate was like the state player of the year in the state of West Virginia, and he didn't get off the bench. I mean, (laughs) how often does that happen? These guys are good players, so you – you have to manage personalities and egos a lot more in college. And that's been a hard part for me. I'll be honest with you. That's a hard part that, that I really enjoyed in high school that wasn't as big of the, the coaching picture as it is in college. I, I would imagine that challenge. And I, I've talked about it just from a small college perspective is that the amount of time that it takes to get good at and invest in, you can't just get good at it and all of a sudden do it. It takes effort and attention every day to deal with egos, to deal with bruised egos, to deal with relationships within your team. Uh, and ma- you said it, managing personalities uh, is just a monstrous part of coaching really at every level, but it, every level you go up, it becomes more of an issue because the talent level between teams isn't drastic. So it's getting the most out of your talent means managing those things to make sure they're not a they're not a, a hurdle or an obstacle to your success. And I, I can't get over how difficult it's become to do those things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have a staff meeting every day, and, and the majority of it's talking about the makeup of our team, and what's going on with each guy, and, and what they're doing, and how the you know academics are going, and family life, and personal life, and you know, if they're getting along, and you know just that type of thing. Because you know when when. You know as well as I do when you're when you're winning, things are good and a lot easier. Um, if anything goes a little bit south, you got to know those things because you need to know what motivates a guy to get him turned back around. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know I, I've said this before: the biggest challenge in coaching now compared to when I started, I think the biggest challenge now is how difficult it is to answer the question when you're struggling. I think there's one question that really matters: is it them or is it us? Meaning, is it something they're not doing properly or hard enough, or, or, or is it something we're doing that's poor from, a, from a, an approach standpoint or from a scheme standpoint? And because it's those other factors that can create kids having problems, it's, it's a difficult question to answer. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And, and we all have egos of some sort. Um, so it's hard to get by that because especially uh, if you're a coach, you know, I've been on both sides. I mean, we had an awful year this year. 
but I've also won championships at yeah. the high school level, at the division two level, at the division one level. So I know what it takes. Right. Um, so, and when what I've done has worked with other teams. So why isn't it working with this team or this player? Um, so you just, you know, you want to tell your players, well, this used to work with these guys and they're looking at you like, coach, I don't really care. It doesn't work with me. You know, so you have to figure out what that is and, and why, or get them to buy into whatever that is one way or another. Um, right. And that's different, and it's harder every year. Well, Eric, this is the bad news. we got to end the podcast, and the bad news for you is everybody that's a guest on here has to send the host a T-shirt, so I hope you're okay with that. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Talking Hoops podcast with Coach John Cook. Our guest was Eric Gabriel of High Point University in North Carolina. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can catch this one and previous episodes as well as future episodes on Spotify and Google Podcasts. Please review, rate, and subscribe if you enjoyed Talking Hoops with Coach John Cook. We appreciate you again for listening and talk to you soon.